G'day, mates. <laughs> it is good to be back. And let's go ahead and uh, begin class with a prayer. And gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study and for the blessings that you're pouring out on this message all over the world. We pray that you'll bless us today, bless those all over the world who are sharing this in their communities, that more and more doors will open, the world will be lighted, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. All right, let's do some announcements first, and then we're going to tell you a little about the trip that I just got back from. It's very exciting what's happening. Uh, For those who have the Remedy app, there's been an update made available to fix some of the glitches. So if you haven't done the update, go ahead and do the update. If you still have glitches, they say to uninstall, reinstall. And then if you still have a glitch, email us and we will send it in for them to fix that one. But I know with mine, most of the glitches are fixed. There's still one that they already know about, but they're working on that. And then remember the... uh, the general conference is coming up. Keep our ministry in your prayers. That will be a great opportunity to distribute and share this message with people at the GC starting in July. Now from the trip. First off, I want to thank Wendell Moses, Russell Atkins, and Lori Atkins uh, for teaching while I was gone and let you know that on several places I went, people mentioned you by name and, let, and told me how, uh, what a great job you guys are doing and how much they appreciate you guys when I'm, when I'm away. So I want to let you know that. And then I want to thank this class for your support. Uh, It's this core class here that has made so much about what I'm going to tell you possible. If you remember five years ago and where we were and the transitions we went through, uh, but we stuck together and we formed the ministry and we've started sharing this online and, and more and more people have come to it. And, and now just, it's incredible what's, what's happening around the world. And then also thanks to our online family who have joined this message and are sharing it in their communities and supporting us both financially as well as teaching. Huge impact you're having. And if you're a little bit discouraged, as a few individuals we ran into, uh, we're feeling a little discouraged because they kind of like are in an isolated part of the country or someplace. Don't be because there are people all over the world that are sharing this message. So we want to express our overwhelming appreciation first now to Simon Harrison, our manager in Australia who has worked tirelessly to bring uh, this entire three-week event off. And I wish you all could meet Simon. He is the most amazing Christian gentleman, humble, gentle, faithful, diligent, immaculate attention to details, uh, and seeks only to give glory to God. And, uh, and he's also a great father of four beautiful children. Uh, he does a fantastic job of representing us and this message down under. And because of him, everywhere went, people just always broke into a smile because they'd been dealing with Simon. Um, for those going to the GC in July, you'll get an opportunity to meet Simon because he'll be working in our booth there from July 1 to 12 with us. So if, you, if you're there. Well, we flew in on, on uh, we left here April 29, and we arrived in Brisbane on May 1. And at 6 in the morning or 7 in the morning, and we were supposed to speak that night, but that day Brisbane got hit with torrential rains getting over 3 inches an hour. And seriously, 3 inches an hour, what was coming down the interstates literally were torrents. And and anywhere that had any type of a corner or dip or valley was just absolutely flooded. There were cars flooded everywhere. So we actually canceled the Friday night meeting. And, and, uh, when we moved that talk to Sabbath morning, and we just did that talk Sabbath morning at the, uh, at the church there, which worked out perfectly because woke Sabbath, it was sunny, beautiful, just brilliant, lovely day, and, uh, the church was standing room only, over 700 people in attendance, absolute, uh, support, it was a Springwood SDA church there in Brisbane. Many wonderful people we met, enthusiastically supporting, including the pastoral staff, Pastor Kendall Cobbin and his wife, Linnell. We really want to thank them, as well as Pastor Cara Dale. 
And then other people in Brisbane that really were uh, supportive was Don and Deanna Pritch, uh, Pitchford and uh, Pastor Mike Brownhill. All of them really helpful in putting this med- message forward. And the added bonus for Brisbane, for me and Christy and Simon were, was that Lewis Johnson, who was all the illustration for the Journal of the Watcher and the audio score, he flew in from Dubai and we got to spend the weekend with Lewis Johnson too. And it was the first time I got to meet Lewis in person, even though we'd Skype sometimes. And he, what an amazing talent Lewis has if you've seen his work, the artistry and the music, and he uses it all to spread this picture about God. And now he's spreading this picture about God in Dubai. And we, he told us some stories and you can imagine what it's like to try and share this picture of God in Dubai, but he's doing it. A great guy. So, and then on Sunday in Brisbane, we, we presented at the Anglican Church in Brisbane, and the, um, the conference official from the Anglican Church, Ralph Bowles, uh, introduced us, introduced me, telling his audience that he'd read The God-Shaped Brain and what a powerful impact it had on his, his picture of God, and he was so enthusiastic and positive to have us there to do the message, and they had a, a group, uh, a nice group there with priests and educators from their denomination who came up afterwards and all wanted copies of our DVDs and materials and were very enthusiastic. And then we drove to Toowoomba, and we spoke to a community there. There's a church school there, and they invited and put out the word into the community. And they had a, they filled their church, which sat probably about, um, four or five hundred people. It was mostly full. And, uh, most, and most of the people were from the community. And they came and we did a presentation, The Developing Brain, and then gave away our DVDs and materials and very positively received. I want to give a big thanks to, uh, Arla Jean and Daryl Groves, who, uh, drove us around, and Adrian Fitzpatrick, who was the, uh, Principal of the Darling Down uh, Christian Principal, a uh, Christian school there in uh, Toowoomba. And then next we flew to Perth. Perth is all the way to the other side of the country. It's a coast to coast. It's about a five, a little over five hour flight across the, the country. Australia is about the size of the United States. Uh, we have 350 million, 80 million people, something like that. Is that about right? Australia is the size of the United States and they have uh, uh, 22 million people. So, um, a lot of, a lot of space. And um, so we next flew to Perth, and they all live in the large cities mostly, mostly live in the large cities on the coast, where I presented to an interdenominational group of Christian counselors, did an all-day seminar for them, and it overwhelmingly just so positive about the integration of understanding the mind with these principles of God's design. I went through design laws with them and how it fits in with mental health and healing. And uh, they've already invited me back to do another series for their group. And then I, we spoke at the Living, Livingston and Fremantle SDA churches. Uh, again, huge response. Gave away our stuff everywhere we went. So big thanks to the Christian Counselors Association team and Karen Masters, Pastor Paul uh, Goltz of Livingston SDA Church, Pastor Clem and Julie Van Valengui from uh, Fremantle SDA Church, Jan Chapman, uh, Nathaniel Harrison, and Janelle and Keith Hockley, all who are big supporters there. And that we were blessed uh, to spend time with Simon's children while we were there. Maddie, Christian, Kara, and Daniel, and their, his mother Shirley and her husband John. His brother Nat, Julie, his wife, and, and their kids. And then a big thanks to Wendy for her friendship, time, energy, and support. All of them were really just behind us the whole way. And then we went also, with so many people were, were supporting us everywhere we went. On Sunday we flew to Melbourne. And in Melbourne, we had a three-day seminar to an interdenominational group of, of Christian counselors and, and uh, leaders. And again, we did the, the um, I guess we did eight talks there in two and a half days and integrated God's uh, design for the mind uh, with the neuroscience, with the, uh, the principles of mental wellness, uh, 
very positive received. They, they were already wanting to plan another tour. Uh, we want to thank Emmanuel and Nada Millen and, and uh, his parents, as well as um, William and his wife and daughter. Thursday, we flew to Sydney, where we did a TV interview for Adventist uh, Media, uh, thanks to Kent Kingston and Adventist Media Center. They will broadcast on the Hope Channel Australia and the Hope Channel North America Division. It's nine, and nine minutes. So of those of you who watch the Hope Channel, uh, it's going to broadcast sometime in June. So watch if you see it come. It's a nine-minute segment with Kent Kingston. And, was, and he read our book, loved it, and was a great just... One, and when you, when you watch it, it was a single take. We just did it, boom, live and didn't have to do any redo. So it really went smoothly. And... Then we went on to the SAND. Anybody know the SAND is the Adventist Hospital in Sydney? And they just built an entire new wing there. It is probably the, in fact, it's not probably, it is the nicest hospital I've ever set foot in. It's incredible. It's like, it's, it's actually on the piece of property it's on. It's on the highest piece of property in all of Sydney. So it sits up above everything, and then it's multiple stories high. And they've designed it so that all patient rooms have an entire um, bank of windows in the room. So it's a wa- the wall is a window looking out over the bush on either side. So you use this nature out over it, and it's huge, huge vision. And then they've tied that in all through the hospital. They've got all the artwork, artistry of the bush tied into the wallpaper, the walls, the mirrors, the, everything is tied and connected together. So it's just a fantastic facility. It's like, oh yeah, but they're too far for me to get to if I'm thick. Um, but it was great, and we we had a uh, we presented there the God shaped brain to their staff and uh, multiple people came up afterwards got copies of our DVDs and I want to thank Dr Alex Curie uh, of the uh, uh, the hospital there for making that possible and Susan uh, Suzanne Hadfield Thursday and Friday we presented at Avondale College then an all day seminar at Maitland and we appreciate Wayne French who's the chaplain at at, uh, at Avondale who helped coordinate that and then Rick and Darlene Sharp pastor at Maitland who uh, was such a hard worker behind the scenes working to bring that event off to the community. And we presented in the community center, and it was uh, filled and had really, again, positive responses. We didn't go anywhere that didn't get overwhelming, enthusiastic response to this message. And then we want to thank Brendan Woolley, who took his time to drive us two hours after the meeting in Maitland down to Sydney and uh, personally given away, bought and given away over 200 of the God-shaped brain book to people over there because it just loved this message. And then we want to thank Matt and Heidi Thompson, who are actually developing this message in ways to give to the youth and the young people. And Pastor Bradley Ray, who did an interview for a YouTube channel. And Brad Horn, who um, helped organize and bring our resources to various places. And we're getting close. On Sunday, we uh, flew to Auckland, New Zealand. And uh, we had to get up early, get on a plane, fly to Auckland, get through customs. We arrived in Auckland a little after 1 o'clock. had to get through customs, drive 45 minutes, where I did my first talk at 3.30 on, uh, on Sunday afternoon. And this was uh, the Our Feet on the Rock, um, uh, which was organized by the Australian New Zealand uh, Education Departments of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it was a summit that they had with about 150, 170 teachers from both conferences. And huge positive response to the messages that we presented. And we want to uh, thank uh, Daryl Murdoch, which is the National Director of Adventist Schools Australia, Rosalie McFarlane, Director of Education New Zealand Pacific Union Conference, Lyndon Chapman, Associate Director of Education Adventist Schools Australia, Ken Westlake, Director for Education Pacific Division, and then all the wonderful teachers, principals, and other who made it possible. And then a special thanks to Stephen Davies, who took us on a plane ride around Auckland and New, Ze- uh, New Zealand, where we could see the the countryside 
And then on Tuesday evening, we spoke to a community in New Zealand, uh, who, which is our last program. And this was made possible by Terry and Rich, Richard Marsters, who are native New Zealanders, half Cook Islander, half um, Mode people, which is the native Polynesian um, New Zealanders. And um, they worked tirelessly to, uh, to fill a movie theater that we came and did two programs for for the community. And that's why I'm wearing these. And I'll tell you a little about this. These were, these were handmade in the Cook Islands. And Terry and Richard had uh, these brought over for Christy and I, which are very difficult to get, I understand, these days. And very rare because they're, these, are, these little or tiny individual little shells, you want to come and see them afterwards. And they're very hard to get because they're so small and so fragile that they usually crush in the ocean and stuff. And uh, these were given to to special people who come to visit as a welcome. And so they gave both Christy and I a set of these. And then when we got to the conference, I'm going to show you a couple other things. Um, at the conference, they had a special ceremony that um, the, the dignitaries would put on a special robe. And this is a miniature. This is a miniature. Okay. And uh, they had me. They had me at the conference wear a full one of these. And then they, uh, they sang in their native um, language, and then we had to go around and and I touch noses with all the dignitaries because it's a kind of a traditional thing. And and then because of that, Terry and um, Richard at the Tuesday night program, uh, they went out and had a miniature one made for me to give to me, and I just was so thankful for that. And they said that uh, the lady who makes these, when they told her that I was here giving free lectures to the community and what I was talking on, she said if they would have told her ahead of time, she'd have made me a full one just to, to, to give to me. And they said, if I come back, I will have a full one of those that she'll make for me. Isn't that fantastic? And then they gave Christy and I this award, which is presented to Timothy and Christy Jennings, Healing the Mind Seminar, Auckland, New Zealand, 2015. And this is a koru. And uh, not kuru, this is a koru, K-O-R-U, which is a, a symbol of the Modi people, and it symbolizes uh, peace and eternity. And um, and so that's what they provided for us as a thank you. And, and we just had a fantastic time. Um, but the most fantastic thing of all was the people. Everybody that we met who, who, who knows and, and, and this message has such love and affection in their heart for us and for what we're sharing and are enthusiastic to be sharing this um, in their communities. And they wanted me to come back and express to all of you here their thanks and appreciation because of what you do to support all the resources and stuff that we're providing. And if I forgot someone, if I forgot someone, please forgive me because when I wrote all this out last night, I was 29 hours jet lagged from 29 hours of tra- travel. So, <laughs> okay. Any count questions or anything about any of that? So, yeah. all righty. So we're going to go on to our lesson then. Lesson number 10 in the book of Luke. And the uh, title is uh, Following Jesus in Everyday Life. And the memory verse is from Luke 17.5 and it says, and the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And when you hear that, what does it mean, increase our faith? What comes to mind? When I was there, I noticed several times they used the word faith about uh, people being um, part of the faith or, uh, or, or you know, having faith or we belong to the faith. Or, uh, do we use faith as a, as a noun, as in a religion, or do they think we're talking here about the experience of confidence and trust in him? Confidence and trust in him? Okay. That's what I think too. So from, if we're talking about faith as a, as a confidence or trust, 
from what is faith based and what increases it? They're asking that they can have more faith. Evidence. Evidence. Excellent. Okay. Anything else? Well, practicing faith is what increases it. Excellent. Okay. So, so, so evidence slash truth, experience, and experience with, and then that segues into trials where we have our situations in which we actually have to put our faith into action and see how things turn out. And you may say, if you think about a relationship, how does your trust in a person get increased when you trust them with a circumstance, a situation, and they come through for you? And they do it repeatedly and reliably and predictably, and they don't let you down. Your experience with it and their reliability, your faith increases. So this is why the Bible talks about you know trials and tribulations developing faith, because those times we trust God with the outcomes. We don't trust God to make our choices. We make our choices in harmony with our understanding of God's purposes for us and his will, but then we trust him with how it turns out. Yes? Well, to me, what I find is the hardest part of that is remembering God's time and not my time. Sometimes my faith is it's strengthened, but it's tested. In other words, you know, you pray for an answer to, to something. It might take longer than you ever imagined. During that time, is your faith strengthened? Or do you lose faith thinking, you know, what's going to happen here? I'm with you. And as you're saying that, it popped into my head, would be a good Sabbath afternoon discussion sometime. We did take some of the stories from the Bible and discuss, like, the story of... Sarah, look at that. I mean, the story of David... And Goliath, the uh, story of, what was the other story I had in my head just a second? I remember, I am jet lagged still. Um, but some of these stories in the Bible, and ask the question, oh, Elijah and the calling down the fire. Did, did, did they have a, a planning session with God prior to those events where God said, hey, I want you to go out and pick up five stones, and I'm going to be with you. Or I want you to go set up that uh, those uh, this confrontation at Mount Carmel, and I will call fire down. I will bring fire down when you call for it. Did, did they have the instruction from God to do that, or did they go do it and put God in a position to? I mean, David just had confidence God would deliver, and he just went out and did it. Uh, Elijah just had confidence God would deliver, and he just went out and did it. Um, or did they have a discussion with God before they went out and did it? Uh, this would be a great dialogue. Where, and where does that happen? Because um, you might see examples. Gideon clearly had instruction and conversation with God, because God told him to go out and get 300. It pared it down, pared it down. He kept saying, okay, if the fleece this way, fleece that way. So clearly with Gideon, there were some conversations beforehand going on. So, where, where, you know, that, that would be an interesting discussion, because we're not to tempt God. How do you get the presumption aspect in there? You know, if we set up a, right here in Collegeville a couple of uh, altars and, and ask God to bring fire down from heaven to burn one, uh, would that be uh, an act of faith or would that be presumption? Yes. When I read this text, uh, I thought about having a patient come in to me saying, increase my strength. Well, what I would do would be provide a framework and tell them to exercise. To increase their strength. You know, it's, it's science. It's, it's what we've talked about before, the law of exertion. So, yes, we have to exercise. So faith is, this, this aspect is, yes, we have to be put in positions where we have to trust him. <clears throat> Which means we have to be put in positions where we don't know the outcome. Right. We know the one who's told us. And we know we're following his guidance. He said to do something, we are doing it. And then we're trusting with the outcome. That strengthens faith. I like that very much. Um, so... 
Is this how you've been taught to experience faith? Through experience and evidence and exercise. How much of Christianity is declaratives? Believe. Why? Because I said so. Because the Bible said so. Because the church says so. Because Mr. White says so. Because God says so. Trust the Bible because it's inspired. Have you heard that one? It's inspired. Trust it. Does God want us to believe on declarations? On the road to Emmaus, when Christ was walking with the two men, what method did he use? Evidence, Evidence of historical prophecies that were then fulfilled in the, act, in the historical acts of his life, merging those two pieces together, their faith grew, seeing the actual facts, evidences of his life, corresponded with what was prophesied in Scripture. We give our children didactic instructions. Education on the stories of the Bible, memory texts, doctrines, and supposed rationales for those doctrines. But do we, after didactic education, have specified application in which the children go out and practice applying what they were taught in their Bible lectures? Well, think about this with me. Isn't this what Christ did? He taught them. Then he demonstrated in actions what he taught them. And then didn't he send them out? Didn't he send them out? to go experience relying on him, practicing his methods, and teaching his truths. Didn't he do it? Send them out two by two in the 70s. Okay. In, in the military, soldiers are given lectures. And then they're taken out in the field and given opportunity to practice, whether it's a weapon or how to navigate using a compass or how to stop a wound from bleeding or put on a field dressing or load and unload a stretcher into a Jeep or helicopter. They're given opportunity to practice. In nursing school, medical school, dental school, they're given lectures but then they're given opportunity to a practice applying what they learned, learned in their lectures, applying it in real life. What would happen if soldiers or healthcare providers only got lectures, no hands-on applications of what they heard in lectures, and then found themselves dealing with real-world problems? Do our children struggle to apply God's truth in life because it has been didactic, theoretical, without real-world application? Yes. As part of the teaching program in the residency, um, went recently to a class in which they described the effective teaching techniques, and they compared two groups of residents, a group that had instructors teach them, and a group that they didn't have instructors teach them. And actually, the group that didn't have instructors teach them did better than the group over the five-year course. When, when you say teach them, you mean they didn't have anybody show them, they just had to figure it out on their own? They had the techniques, they had instructions, but they practiced. And I think the real okay. difference was... Two methods of teaching, then. It's two oh. methods of okay. teaching. And, and it was the practice that they got to do independently. Okay. Learned that they learned better than when they were just told... This is the way to do it. This is how it gets done. Right. Whatever. So they weren't regimented in a, in, a, in, a, in a didactic or a regimented system of how you do it. They were in med school. It was like see one, do one, teach one. Remember that? So we were saying they, somebody did show them, but then they went to practice. Yeah. Well, that's good. So with, with this in mind, we met some people, wonderful people in Australia, who have developed an entire new Bible course for Adventist education primary and secondary schools already implemented in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Linnell Cobbin was one of those amongst the team that helped develop this, which is now being implemented and rolled out in North American Division. 
focusing on God's character of love, guys. And this is the education. It focuses on, this is the, the simple way to remember it. It's head, heart, hands, and feet. Head means that they teach them a concept, and after they teach them the concept, focus on making that truth about God a real experience in their life, that they experience God in this way for themselves. That's the heart. And then they apply it by, by acting in love, altruistically doing something for someone else, and then they, with, that's their hands, and then with their feet, they take that message and share it with somebody else. This is their Bible education. They take a concept, understand it cognitively, then experience it in a relation with God, then do something with it in the way they treat somebody else, and then carry it out and share it evangelistically. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, that's really good. I love that. Especially since it's all centering around the truth about God's character of love. So when I got over there and was taking this message, this group of people, they just there was a synergy because they were already forming on this as well. So, First paragraph, it says, Though a great teacher, Jesus... Hmm. Anybody? Though a great teacher? Mm-hmm. Anyway, just... Okay. Though a great teacher, Jesus did not establish a school of theology or philosophy. His purpose was to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to reveal the, he came to reveal the character of God, a revelation that culminated in the cross, where he not only showed humanity and unfallen worlds what God was really like, but he also paid the penalty for sin so that human beings, despite their fallen nature, could be redeemed. If Jesus didn't establish a school of theology and philosophy, what did he establish? The truth. Truth? And I just put, I just can't help putting it, but it's, my view is a remedy. He established what we need to cure our condition, the remedy. Which is, truth is, is, is the same, I guess, same thing, I just slightly different way of saying it. But the remedy consisted of, as I break down the remedy, it consisted of, the first, I have four bullets here. One, the truth about God and himself to win us to trust. But, the truth about sin to reveal it is deviation from God's design of love and is the cause of death, right? And the truth about Satan was exposed at the cross to sever trust in him and his ways. You notice these three truths? Truth about God and Jesus to win us to trust. Truth about sin to reveal that death comes out from sin, not from God. And truth about Satan as a liar and a fraud to sever trust in him and his ways. And the third and the fourth thing, a, per, a new perfect humanity, a human character perfected by the choices made with a human brain, the human brain of Jesus Christ. As the lesson states, he did reveal the truth about God's character. Why was this necessary to be revealed? Why? Yeah, it wasn't obvious. It was, it, I mean, and if anybody thinks, well, how can you say that? Just look at the people of his day. Here he is standing among them. How many recognized him? And how many of them thought they were following the true God and yet killed him? Yes, exactly. When they went to stone him multiple times, they thought, oh, this is God. But exactly. So the evidence is very clear his character had been completely misrepresented. So what do you think is meant by the language? He also paid the penalty for sin so that human beings, despite their fallen nature, could be redeemed. Does anyone see the contradiction in that statement? There's a contradiction in that statement. Anyone want to point it out? 
in that very, in, the, in that very sense, not the previous part before we're talking about God's character, just in this portion, there's a, there's a contradiction. He also paid the penalty so that human beings, despite their fallen nature, could be redeemed. What's the contradiction? Yes. He was paying the penalty so that he could redeem them. So he's paying it. It, it, he was the same person. The same person that paid the penalty was the same person that was redeeming them. Yes. Who's the penalty being paid to, number one? Yeah. Right? But what's the fallen nature mean? By that, what's fallen nature mean? We were born with it. Oh, it's a condition we have. It's a condition we have. So it would be like, it would be saying like, he paid our speeding fine so that despite having leukemia, we could be redeemed. <laughs> he paid our fee- speeding fine at the court, so despite having leukemia, we could be de- redeemed. Does that make any sense to anybody? It doesn't have to do with anything. <laughs> it, that's what they're saying. Our fallen nature is a terminal condition. Without remedy, without, without being reborn, without having the law written on the heart and mind, without being recreated, without, with all those metaphors, transformation of the inner man... There's no salvation. Paying a penalty does nothing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Okay? If you go through that imperial law model, then you read that as, without the shedding of blood, your penalty can't be paid and you can't have legal pardon in the courtroom. But if you're under the design model, think about the person with leukemia. If they have leukemia, what do you want to have happen to the leukemia? Do you want the cancer to go into... Remission. remission. When cancer goes into remission, the cancerous cells remit back to their previous cancer-free state, putting them into remission. So without the shedding of blood, sinfulness in humanity would not remit. The human character would not remit back to God's original design. That's true. This is not a legal process. It's a healing, restorative, recreative process, if you want to call it that. So he pay- so. It is confusing. This is the confusion that comes from expecting, accepting Imperial Rome's idea of law. When you operate under this model without questioning, God's got rules, rules broken, require punishment, justice requires that God inflict the proper punishments, then you come up with this contradictory type of stuff. We've got to follow nature, but still penalty has to be paid so that we can be redeemed. We've got terminal, we've got terminal leukemia, and before the doctor can give you the remedy to heal you, somebody's got to pay a penalty. It would be better to leave out the legal language or clarify it. God, because you could say it this way if you want, God and Christ pay a high, pay, paid a high price to fix the damage Adam Sid did to humanity. That price is what is, was needed to reveal the truth, destroy death, restore humanity back to God's ideal and expose Satan as a liar and fraud. It cost him a lot to do it. It was a high price. You could say somebody donating a kidney to a person in renal failure pays a high price to donate that kidney. But it's not a legal price. It's the price the condition itself requires in order to fix it. So yes, God paid a high price. Third paragraph, it says, the call to be part of this redeemed community is a call not to a preferred status in life, but to an absolute allegiance to the one who calls, to Christ. What he says becomes the disciple's law of life. What he desires becomes the disciple's sole purpose in life. No amount of outward goodness or doctrinal perfection can take the place of total allegiance to Christ and his will. How do you all hear that? You know, at first it almost sounds, almost sounds good. 
But did some part of it, did you get some like, okay, it's like I can't quite point out something wrong with that, but did, did it have a kind of a feel that just didn't quite jive some way? Does it weave a subtle message that maybe Christ himself would not prefer be, be sent? Does it sound outward in? Does it sound like it's suggesting we surrender to Christ? When we surrender to Christ, we stop thinking for ourselves. We simply become aware of what his, he wants. What's it say here? Um, his, what, what he says becomes the disciple's law. What do you say, Lord? You tell me to jump, I'll jump. You tell me to run, I'll run. You tell me to do this, I'll do this. You tell, I, I don't want to make any mistakes. You just tell me. You want me to wear, uh, want me to wear galoshes or, 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 or what? You just tell me. I just, I, I'm waiting to hear. I'm, I'm the servant waiting. I won't move until you tell me. Is that, it almost sounds that way to me. Maybe it's just me. When you heard the, the phrase law of life, did anything pop into your mind? They use that phrase in there, that hit what he says becomes the disciples' law of life. Ellen White uses that phrase in many places, the law of life, but you know what she always says it is? The law of love. Love is life. Love is the law of life. Now, of course, God, if rightly understood, we could say this is true because whatever Jesus says is always going to be an expression of love and it's always going to be for our best interest. Why does God say, I have no over the gods before me? Because he's authoritarian and dictator-like and gets offended if we don't. Or because he is love and he knows that only by worshiping him is it for our good and it destroys us to worship anything else. So he's telling us for our best benefit. And so rightly understood, we can understand this. In the Old Testament, there were two people identified as God's friends in the Old Testament. Anybody remember who those two people were? Abraham and Moses. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, who, and what did those two people of note do when God came to them with words? Did they say, yep, his words are my law. You said it, Lord. I believe it. That settles it. I would never question you. So when God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom, Sodom said, go for it. I praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Who am I to question? Or did Abraham question? And question again, and question again, and question. Until in Abraham's mind, he cornered God down to a a bargaining point where he thought he had God and he saved the cities. He didn't think there couldn't be less than 10. He he didn't think that, did he? And so Abraham thought he'd gotten God, thought he'd he'd talked God all the way out of what he was doing. And then, of course, when when God came to destroy the Israelites, what did Moses do? Uh, Absolutely, Lord, you're sovereign. Your word is my law. Go for it. Is that what he did? So do you see why I take some question about how this is represented here? They loved God, both of them, and they loved his reputation, they loved his character, and they knew him, and because they knew his heart was love, they knew that he loved those people too. How could you do it? So when you think about allegiance to Christ and his will, what is allegiance to Christ and his will? Is it allegiance to power? Is it to allegiance to position? What's it, our allegiance based on? It's the acceptance of God and his love. Yeah. As a God of love. And it's understanding our master's business. 
and being and, and we're we're, we're allegiance because he deserves it. He's one. This is why in Revelation, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He's revealed the truth of his character. He revealed how things work. We understand how his universe is designed. It makes so much sense. We are so happy we have a God like this. We wouldn't want to be any way different. We're devoted to him. Yeah. Sunday's lesson asked us to read Luke eleven thirty-seven to fifty-four, and I thought I'd I'd just cruise through that um, in the remedy. In the remedy, follow in any version you want. When Jesus had finished speaking, a legal theologian of the Pharisee sect invited him home to eat. So Jesus went and reclined at the table. But when Jesus didn't first do a ceremonial washing of his hands before the meal, the Pharisee was shocked. So the master, oh, before I read this, I wanted to tell you this. For some of you, I, I had a couple of people email me why I chose to use the word doctor in the book of Luke instead of teacher. And if you look in the uh, remedy in Luke chapter 6, uh, I've actually put a footnote, and it says uh, in verse 46, it says, the term doctor traces its roots back to the early church when the term referred to the apostles, church fathers, and other Christian authorities who taught the Bible. Only later did it come to refer to physicians. Thus, in the book of Luke, understanding the plan of salvation is the plan to heal sinners, and written by a physician, it wanted to merge the idea of teacher and healer, and thus use the term doctor rather than teacher. And I give the reference for that historical footnote, where doctor originally meant the apostles and those who taught the gospel. So, that's why I, I, I'm using that term in here. So, so, uh, so the master tried to enlighten them and said, you legally, behaviorally focused Pharisees work so hard to make yourselves look good on the outside. But the inside, the heart, is full of selfishness, arrogance, and greed. You really don't understand God's kingdom of love. Did not God, who crafted your outside in his image, also design your inside, your heart, and character to be like him? So give from your inside, your hearts, to help the less fortunate, and then everything about you will be clean. Misery is yours, you who teach legal religion, you Pharisees. You proudly pay a pre-tax tithe and even give a tenth of the herbs in your garden, but you fail to do what actually matters, to do what is right because it is right and live in harmony with God's law of love, his design for life. You should have lived lives of love for others without neglecting the simple instructions of God. Misery is yours, you legal theologians, you Pharisees, because you love to put yourselves at the center. You seek the most important places and crave adoration, whether at church or the market. Misery is yours, you legal theologians, Pharisees. You're like unmarked graves, appearing like inviting, like an inviting lawn, but beneath the surface is decay and death. One of the Supreme Court lawyers challenged him, but doctor, don't you realize what you're saying is rude and offensive? You insult us. Jesus answered, and misery is yours, you lawyers, because you create a false legal religious system with so many imposed rules, you burden people needlessly with guilt and fear, and you won't make any effort to help them. Misery is yours, you who teach legal religion. You build tombs and memorials to God's spokespersons, but it was your ancestors who killed them. Thus the memorials you build are a witness against you, for your hearts are no different than those who killed them. Because of your false remedy and penal legal trickery, God in his wisdom said, I will send them my spokespersons, instructors, and Bible scholars. Some they will execute, others they will persecute. Understand then, this generation is responsible for rejecting the witness of every prophet who has been killed since the creation of the world, 
from the murder of Abel to that of Zechariah, who was killed in church right right at the altar. I tell you truly, this generation is responsible for rejecting all the evidence those righteous witnesses gave. Misery is yours, you lawyers and legal theologians. You have the scriptures, the keys to the knowledge of God's kingdom of love, but you have refused to understand it and have created a false legal interpretation that prevents others from understanding it. When Jesus left that place, the legal theologians of the Pharisee sect and the lawyers aggressively opposed him and followed him, berating him with questions, trying to trick him into saying something they could use against him. See, do you notice how this version comes across different than maybe some of the others? Some of the woe to you, woe to you, the woes were Christ. Often when I used to read that, I would read it as Christ is pronouncing it, woe to you, woe to you, as the one in charge. You know, like I'm going to, I'm going to put this on you. But I really see it much more as Christ saying, this is your lot. This is what you're choosing. You can only have misery when you have a terminal condition and you reject the remedy for that condition. The only thing that is yours is misery. Misery and suffering is yours. That's what you're choosing. And did you get that feel from it as I read it? How he's telling them, this is what's yours. This is what you're choosing. We often look at Pharisees and say, well, you wouldn't want to be a Pharisee. And then the things that we describe as being a Pharisees are all about behavior. Whereas really it was the heart. Yes. You know, it was conversion of the heart that they needed. And yet when we look at them, well, they, they did bad things to widows. They enforced various things. They killed Christ, whatever. And yet truly it's a conversion of the heart. That's exactly right. And I'm going to tell you, People who have, um, as we talked in our seven levels talk some time ago, pe- people have, because of our sinful condition, we're born inherently insecure and fearful. We want to feel safe. And when we're children, we feel safe in a variety of ways. One of the ways we find a feeling of safety it, when we're children at certain developmental levels is by keeping the rules. If I'm on base, you can't tag me out. You only tag me out if you catch me in between base. But if I'm on base and I get there before the ball comes, you can't tag Rules say I'm safe. And the rules make them feel safe. Some approach Christianity very much like a baseball game. Here are the rules. Here are the bases. If I stay on base, if, I'm, if, if my car get, tank is filled with gas, I finish the grocery store and the TV's off by sunset, I'm on base. You can't t- touch me. See, I'm safe. Can't swim either. Can't swim either, yeah. Water up to the knee, you're still on base. Yep. Okay? And these types of behaviors, why it gets behavioral. Because they, they're looking for themselves to, because they're scared. And they miss the entire point. The point, the reason they're scared is because they have a condition. If they read Hebrews chapter 2, Christ took about himself human flesh, they might destroy him who has the power of death that is the devil and free those who live all their lives as slaves of the fear of death. The whole world is in fear of dying and death, according to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. We all have this fear. There's one solution for it, and that is to actually be reborn, recreated, have a new heart and right spirit, have the fear eliminated by a heart of love. Christ pours his love into our hearts, and love casts out fear. But instead, the devil comes in with his legal trickery and says, no, 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 guys, you don't need to, you just keep the right rules. Because the, the, problem, the problem with sin isn't sin, really. The problem with sin is you've broken a rule, and the rule giver will execute you for that. <laughs> And so, if you can just keep the right rules, then he'll have no basis to kill you. Or if you can get your 
you know, rule breaking covered in some way by somebody who didn't break the rules and you can claim their legal account to your account, then you can't be killed by the rule giver either. So there's all these legal solutions which have no security for the heart because the heart isn't changed. We're still focused on self. In this way, the first four levels of moral development are the unconverted, self-centered heart. It's all about protecting me. I want to avoid punishment. I want to get a reward. I want to get the best deal I can. I want to be accepted by the social service, and I want to keep the rules so no, no check marks go against me in the ledger that, that I can be punished by. Only level five is love for others. The orientation goes outward. I'm finally thinking of something other than myself. And much of Christianity is a self-centered, narcissistic system where it's all designed so I can be saved, so I can have my sins paid for. And if you look, and if you look at some, you can hear it when you talk to people about the judgment, and they get very uncomfortable about our presentation of the judgment because in their presentation of the judgment, they have a judgment which all the past deeds that they've ever done wrong have been erased. So in the future, during a thousand years, no one will know what they did. It's been erased, so the righteous. Only the wicked deeds will be left to be read in heaven, you see? Because they're afraid. It's a fear-based thing. But think about it when you see the design view and you understand this is a healing recreation process, then you know nothing gets erased because it all gives glory to God. How? Think of a group of cancer patients. And all of them take a remedy that cures them perfectly. The ones who are most sick, and you see that pathology, you see that MRI scan, you see the, the, the necrotic tissue, and now you see it's completely, sore. I mean, that is profound. You were that, and you're that, wow, man, that doctor really has got something going on. It glorifies the doctor who healed you, okay? But if you erase the whole record of the sickness, and we just see how healthy they are, well, I'm glad you're healthy. But God doesn't get the glory out of that. And so this legal view would erase the records that would glorify God because it would be the contrast of how debased we were and how regenerated we are through his grace. But it's because they live in fear. It's about me. I don't want anybody to know what I've done. I don't want anybody to know where I've messed up. I don't want anybody to know what embarrassing things I've done rather than I want to show how God is glorified and what he's done in my life. And you can actually see more of that in the 12-step groups where the 12-step groups will go, hey, I'm Joe, I'm I'm an alcoholic. And I couldn't be set straight until my higher power got a hold of me. Yes? I think this whole thinking transfers even into how we do evangelism because it becomes much more uh, the, the legal, the mental thing. And that's why so many people go out the door after a little while because it's lacking the relationship. We don't, it's lacking the relationship in how they're taught but it's also in how we relate to one another. And you can believe something with your mind, but if you don't feel loved, you don't stay. It's not only, you're exactly right. It's not only lacking relationship, it's, re, it's lacking reality. Yeah. Reality doesn't function the way that legal model says it functions. It doesn't work that way. And because it doesn't work that way, then this is what the Bible means. It has a form of godliness, but denies its power. Because the power is in the relationship with the designer who built us in a certain way, leading us back to live in harmony with his design, which is transformational. That's the power. But the system of rules, there's no power. It's empty. And it only brings building, burdens, guilt, shames, and then you make up. And when I was in Australia, I, I said this everywhere I went. I didn't always get to present the, the, the God in your brain or the designer dictator lecture. I didn't always get to present that. Some, sometimes I only got to present the, the, the lecture on depression or, or the developing brain or the aging brain. But wherever I did, I would always weave one or two slides in on healthy spirituality. And in that section, I would always pause and say, guys, 
I want you to think of your Christian doctrines. And how many doctrines, if you look at their function, what the purpose of the doctrine is actually doing, its operation, its action, the action of the, of the doctrine, how many of your doctrines functionally are there to protect you from God rather than, you rec- to, than, rather than to reconcile you to him? Okay? And when you, go th- when you identify that, and I, I, you can start ticking them off. Why do you need protection from God? Why? Because you've got something operating in your head that God is the enemy, God is the source of pain, God is the one we fear, God is the one who must kill, God is the one who needs something demanded to him, and all that is evidence of Satan's lies infecting your Christianity. We might love Jesus, but we don't want to stand before our intercessor or without a mediator. Heard that one before? We want that robe to cover so the Father can't see us. We want the record books erased, like I was telling you. All these, and I could go on and on and on. You know them all too. But it was a shock to these people. They were like, whoa. They started thinking. You see some lights going on. So in our lesson on the third paragraph, it says, um, for example, while tithing is a joyful acknowledgement of God's provision, it can also be a, a substitute for the basic demands of love and justice in human relations. It can never be a substitute for love and justice. Well, love and justice. What is love and justice? Are love and justice different? Can you ever do justice without love? You can't. Not in God's system. See, under the imperial system, though, this is where it breaks down again. Under a rules-oriented, imposed law structure, justice is about holding someone accountable and inflicting a punishment upon them. This is why George Bush, whether we justice to our enemies or enemies to justice, justice will be done after 9-1-1. And you watch any television law and order program, you will see that they use justice over and over again. They talk to the families of the murdered victims. Help us bring the man to justice. Help us get justice for your dead sister. And what they always mean is help us punish the person. Biblical justice, on the other hand, is always delivering the oppressed, defending the widows, the fatherless, the orphans. It's always about restoring what was taken. So if you want to do justice, you resurrect the murdered person. That's justice. That's God's justice. And that's what he's going to do. If you read to the end of the book, he's restoring what's taken. And you read the promises, all that you've suffered. And he talks about those in scripture who have suffered. uh, More than a hundred or a thousand fold will be returned to us. In the end. Yes. That same example, uh, justice is also converting the murderer. Yes, true. Excellent. It's healing the murderer. If, if possible, if they'll let it. That's exactly right. The person will allow. So, Monday's lesson, first paragraph, Fear God and Give Glory to Him, is the first of the, first of the three angels' messages so central to Seventh-day Adventist life and faith. Fearing God is not being afraid. Well said. Notice that. Fearing God is not being afraid, as is often taught to be. It is realizing just who God is and what His claims on us are, It is an act of faith that involves total allegiance to him. God becomes the sole definer and arbiter of our life, our thoughts, actions, relationships, and destiny. Discipleship is based on that kind of fear, stands on unshakable ground. You know, I think they started out really nice with it's not based on being afraid. But they then moved into a totalitarian relationship where he is the the arbiter who dictates reality that we simply bow to. And then if you go to the next paragraph, the passage shows us whom to fear and whom not to fear. We need not fear forces that can affect only our body in the present world. Instead, we must fear and obey God because in his hands is our eternal destiny. 
wait a second. I'm not supposed to be afraid of him? But now I'm supposed to be afraid of him because he, it's not only my body he can mess with, he can, he can torture my soul? What? Do you see how this, always, they always end up contradicting themselves. They can't help it when you're under an imperial model. Because under an imperial model, in their mind, you can't, you can't avoid the, the judicial system, the, the ruling authority inflicting just punishments. And as much as they try to weave and dodge and weave, they always come back to God as the one who's going to do it. And they have to come back to worship what the three angels message Worship him who made the heavens, the earth. Worship the designer. Understand his laws of the reality. Then you don't have to, to inflict punishments. Is our eternal destiny decided by God? No. No. That's what they're also suggesting here. It says, his hands, in his hands is our eternal destiny. Whose hands is your eternal destiny in? That's exactly right. You see, because God has already made his choice. He made his choice in Jesus Christ. And he chose salvation for every human being. His choice was to save you. He's already made it. He's already committed to it. He's already put his, bl- his blood down with the old money where his mouth is. Okay? He already did it. In Jesus Christ. Everything necessary for our salvation has been done. There's nothing more heaven can do for us. The determination of our salvation is now up to us whether we will choose him. Yes or no? I'm going to skip to Tuesday's lesson. There's more stuff in the notes because I really wanted to do a contrast with you in closing. It asks us to read Luke 12, 35 to 53. I'm going to read it from the NIV. It's kind of long. I'm going to read it from the NIV, but then I want to read it to, to you from the remedy. And I want you to get the feel of the difference between the NIV and the remedy. This is about the servant who isn't ready and gets beaten with many blows. Okay, here's the NIV. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It would be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will, he will dress himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food, allowance, and proper, at the proper time? It will be good for that servant who the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both man and woman, and to drink and to get drunk. The master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he is not aware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers." The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does, and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wished it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and that constraints. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. 
From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Any comments before I share it to you from the remedy? This, 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 is, this is often one, this, this passage of Christ is often used by people who take that penal legal view. See, you're, the Lord will beat you. He's going to beat you with many blows if you don't do this. Here's, here, here it is from the remedy. Be dressed and prepared to serve. Keep your minds alert and your hearts burning with the desire to help. Like people eagerly anticipating their Lord, Lord's return from a wedding reception, who, when he knocks, they instantly open the door for him. It will be a joyful day for those servants who are prepared and watching for their Lord's return. The truth is, he will have them sit at a banquet table and he will serve them. It will be a joyful day for those servants who are prepared and ready when their master arrives, when, even if he arrives in the middle of the night. Understand the importance of being ready. If a homeowner knew the exact time the thief was coming, he would not have been unaware and his house would not have been burglarized. You must live in a state of readiness because the Son of Man will return at a time when you don't expect. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or for everyone? Jesus answered, who, who then is an intelligent and wise manager, one qualified to share the remedy effectively in order to nurture the master's staff? It would be the most awesome experience for that aide when the master returns to find him or her reliably doing so. Truly, that aide will be trusted with all the master possesses. But what if the master's aide is self-centered and says to him or herself, The master has been gone a long time. Who knows when he'll return? And rather than nurturing the staff, he berates and abuses and misleads them and and then goes and uses the master's resources to party with gluttons and drunkards. That aide will be totally surprised, caught completely unaware on the day the master returns. The master will let that wicked servant go, cutting their relationship and casting him out with, with all the, out with all the other counterfeits and frauds who have peddled false remedies. The aide who understands the master, his design, the problem being addressed, how to apply the remedy, and either doesn't do so or applies a false remedy, will suffer many blows, a guilty conscience, warped character, damaged reason, broken relationships, and ultimately a destroyed soul. But the one who doesn't know about the remedy or how to apply it and therefore doesn't do so or applies a false remedy will suffer few blows, regret, disappointment, and grief. The more you are given, the more you have to share with others. The greater your abilities, the more you have to give away. I have come to ignite a fire of truth and love upon the earth, and oh, how I wished it was already an inferno. But I have a mission to complete, and the pressure on me to complete it is overwhelming. Do you think I have come to make peace with a selfish world? Absolutely not. I have, come to, I have not come to make peace with the selfishness, but to cut selfishness out of the hearts of men. From now on, those who choose the remedy will cut dysfunctional family ties, and the family of five will be divided two against three and three against two. Love will free a son from the selfish loyalty to his father's ambitions and feuds, and a father from the selfish exploits of his son. Love will sever a daughter from the control of an oppressive and manipulative mother, and a mother from the selfish demands of the daughter. Love will cut through the fear and hostility a daughter-in-law has towards her mother-in-law and a mother-in-law toward her daughter-in-law. What do you think? Any comments, questions? Let's close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love, as Jesus revealed, and that you have poured all heaven out into Christ to bring us the truth about your kingdom, to restore in human humanity your your 
principles, character of love. May your spirit be poured out in us to take all Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us that we can have understanding into your kingdom and live a life of love here in our community. Continue to bless our class locally, our class online, our friends around the world who are sharing this message all over the world. And may may it just continue to go forward that you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.